to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack, and our guest today is Andrew Lenoy. Andrew oversees the Four Peaks Partners Asset Management and Investor Relations, as well as co-directs the overall investment strategy. Prior to Four Peaks Capital Partners, Andrew was a talent agent at William Morris for 16 years, representing some of the world's biggest celebrities, including Tim Allen, Taylor Swift, Steve Martin, and Tom Petty. In 2009, Andrew started an initiative to acquire investments in the residential asset class in Dallas, Memphis, and Atlanta. And then within six years, Andrew and his team have closed on 25 manufactured housing communities in 13 states with 2,500 lots, quickly making the family of companies a top 100 owner operator in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background and um, if you can share a little bit about how you got into real estate, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm coming to you from Phoenix today, but I lived in Los Angeles for about 20 years. And I worked for a company called the William Morris Agency for over 16 years. And if anyone's ever seen the show Entourage, that was essentially our show. We created that show. Uh, We represented all kinds of celebrities and I focused on comedians and touring artists. And for those those of you who are in corporate America, even if you have a pretty good gig. It's still, you know, it's still corporate and kind of the golden handcuffs. So um, right after the subprime crash, my parents had retired and moved to Fort Myers. They ended up losing quite a bit of money in the downturn. And that was my eye-opening moment of, well, how does this happen? They raised three kids, lower middle class, and all of a sudden they lost a big chunk of their retirement savings. So I started to look into, um, started to read books and stumbled across Rich Dad, Poor Dad, like a lot of us have read. And and that kind of started the journey. And in 2009, I started to buy houses in Dallas, Texas from Los Angeles while I was still working at the agency, um, accidentally timed the market really, really well and realized there was a huge need for affordable housing in the country and was buying houses and uh, renting them out to families in the Dallas area. And that quickly took off and then started to buy houses in Memphis and then uh, ended up in Atlanta building out a company. There were some partners and so really focused exclusively on single families for a good four years before things started to stop penciling out on the single family side. It was probably about 2013 that I, that I stopped investing in single family. Awesome. And so being from California, um, how did you decide to move into the Texas market and invest there first as your um, initial uh, place to invest? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I started, I think when you first start in in real estate, you're, you, I think you naturally start looking in your backyard for deals. And you're in Southern California, so you certainly know the market there well. Um, I started looking in Los Angeles and I'm like, well, how do people make money? Things don't cash flow here. And that was all part of the journey. And I found some really good mentors. I ended up meeting Ken McElroy probably about 12 years ago, who's become a, a close friend. And a lot of these guys were like, look, you got to go where it's a good solid market and deals potentially cash flow. You don't start with a deal. You start with the market and then you drill down and find a team there. 
Um, and so after visiting Dallas a few times, this is when a lot of the companies um, in California and other areas started moving to Texas and Dallas specifically because the market was so strong. So after a couple trips to Dallas, I realized, boy, this is a great, great market and it's clean and it's growing and there's jobs, jobs, jobs. And uh, the price points made a lot of sense. So I was buying houses that were probably 125, 150 range that were renting for 14 to $1,800, something like that. Excuse me. So the numbers made a lot of sense at that time. And so did the market. So that's how I kind of landed on Dallas. And I realized, look, you could, you can live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense. That's something I think Russ Gray from the real estate guys used to say, um, which makes a lot of sense because income producing properties in Los Angeles, that cash flow are just a, it's a rarity, right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. California is, is been a little bit tough to find good real estate to invest in that actually cash flows. It's seems like it's good for appreciation. Um, but what we like to look at is a uh, cash flow. Yeah, exactly right. And so one of the things you mentioned also is um, as you're investing in your single families, you realize the need for affordable housing. How did that come about? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you're putting together different packages and looking at deals and looking at markets and you realize that one of the the most staggering numbers that we came across is it's about 50% of the wage earners in the country that make less than $31,000 a year. So if you think about, you know, you're someone who lives in pick any state, pick any market, they're making $27,000 a year and take home 23000 it doesn't leave you very much for your monthly housing allowance. Um, it certainly can't afford a $1,200 mortgage and put whatever 20% down on a you know, six-figure house, wherever that market is. So that's, that's when I realized that it was half of the wage earners in the country that are really having a hard time just kind of keeping up and really living paycheck to paycheck. So when you kind of dig into that data, it's pretty alarming. You know, Living in Los Angeles, it's, you're, in, you're in kind of a different world there and you go to other markets and you're like, well, my goodness, you can buy a, you know, a pretty decent house somewhere for $400,000 where I used to live and where you are, you know, you basically get a, you get a nice box on the street for that, for that kind of money. Right. Yes, absolutely. So when you're looking for um, the different properties to acquire and for the affordable housing, like what are some of the metrics that you're looking at that actually meet that criteria? So you're saying on the, on the single family side or just in kind of just in general? In general. And then a little bit on the single family side. Yeah, I think when I was looking at uh, single families and acquiring at that time, it was really, you know, there's the kind of the simple 1% rule. So if if a property costs 100000 and you can rent it out for $1,000 a month, depending on the area, it might be able to cash flow. So that's really simple back of the napkin. And, you know, you've got Texas as an example where um, I was buying properties in 2009 and a lot of those properties doubled in about a five-year period, which hadn't happened in Dallas historically. Texas has always been kind of a you know slow and steady state. So it's great on one hand where you have properties that appreciate that much in the same time, Texas uh, property taxes, they assess every year with the new valuation. So you pro forma one one year and all of a sudden it's three years later and your property taxes have gone through the roof because you've had so much new equity in that property. So um, my core model at the beginning was really for cash flow. It wasn't about, hey, I'm going to pick a market and hope it appreciates. I just didn't didn't want to go that route. It was really buying something that cash flowed initially right off the bat. That was kind of what I stuck to. So after you got into single family, and then what did you do afterwards after the things started not penciling out anymore for you? Um, what was that transition like? 
Yeah, probably about 2013, um, had stopped buying single family. I started looking at multifamily, which even, even back then felt like it was a little getting a little frothy at that point. Cap rates were compressing, uh, looked at other businesses. I looked at other commercial real estate and had a friend who was buying manufactured housing in mobile home parks and had a few communities that he owned and really took a good look at that model. And that's kind of when everything came full circle with the affordable housing side and realized, boy, you could have have this mobile home community where residents are paying a $300 a month lot rents and then some amount to own that home or maybe rent that home if they don't own it free and clear. And you start comparing that to the other, you know, an apartment of that size and, you know, even renting a house. And I mean, it just blew everything out of the water as far as affordability. So it seemed to make the most sense in probably 2014, 15, started putting the companies together and acquiring uh, manufactured housing and mobile home parks. Oh, great. And then, so you talked about a little bit about the manufactured housing. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and um, what you guys are looking for when you guys are moving into different markets? Yeah. I mean, so manufactured housing just simply, just simply refers to, you know, it's a mobile home park. There's a bit of a misnomer because they're not really mobile. It's not something you can just hook up to the back of your pickup truck and, and haul it out in the middle of the night. You know, they're brought in on special trucks and they're set. And generally when a manufactured home or a mobile home is set on a property, it stays there for the life of that home. So you hear mobile home parks. And I think a lot of people might think RVs and things like that, which there could be RV pads where someone comes in for, you know, a season or rents a per month. But in our world, it's uh, the manufactured housing or mobile home parks are those, those structures that are there and, and really stay there for the life of the home. Even if um, someone moves out, if they're renting it or they own it and something happens and they have to leave that community, generally that home stays there. So, so it's really, it's really mobile home parks, but the manufactured housing is, you know, just kind of another element of it. I see. So are you are you purchasing the um, manufactured housing where they're already established or are you building it and creating that community? Yeah, it's already established. Um, there's only a handful of parks that are built from the ground up every year. It's a small number. It's, you know, it happens to fall under kind of the, the not in my backyard mindset where when going back again, it's like the country needs affordable housing so desperately, but a lot of municipalities just don't want it in their backyard. So they make it hard with zoning and permitting and other things to go build. And it's also a completely different model if you're going to build. Um, it's even different than building an apartment building because in our world, we want our, our residents to own their homes. And so that takes time to, you know, let's say you built a hundred space mobile home park and you're bringing in a hundred homes to sell. Um, it's a lot different than renting. It takes a longer time because there's a, a market absorption, right? Where it takes to sell off those homes. So you know, at some point we're, we're seeing cap rate compression, just like everyone's been through the past, you know, five, 10 years since the subprime crash. At some point it might make sense to develop, but it's, it's really much cheaper to go in and buy something existing that has problems and issues and poor management, all those things that, um, that, you know, as real estate investors, that's what we look for. We look for, you know, the more problems that we can solve that generally the, the better of a deal you're going to get in some cases. Especially during now with COVID-19 and everything like that in the current market, what does that outlook like for you in that manufactured housing and has it impacted that um, sector? Yeah, in general, you know, it's a great question. I think our collections have been really, really good through this. I know that other 
people that I know in the space and who are in residential and affordable housing have said the same thing that just the core business of collections have been great. What we found is that our a lot of our residents, they're they're essential workers. They're the folks, you know, it goes back to the $31,000 a year. And those are folks that are working at grocery stores and Walmarts and targets and gas stations and everything like that. They're not, they're not white collar executives. It's the essential workers. And that's about half of the country. So our collections have been actually great through this. We've had other parts of our business that have been impacted. The the commercial lending markets completely dried up for a while. Uh, Private equity markets really stopped because no one had a playbook for this, right? This all started in really for us, we started sending everyone home from the office back in March of last year of 2020 um, and haven't really sent anyone back to the office now. So that's when this started to unfold. And no, you know, again, no one had a playbook to say, well, don't worry, it's only going to last six months and there'll be a vaccine at some point. I mean, just no one knew what the heck was going to happen. So I think everyone tried to, you know, sit on cash and um, not really do, not really go out and acquire a lot. We, you know, we were making offers at that point back in February and March. And we thought, well, boy, do we want, a huge amount of money sitting out in earnest money on a property that we don't know if it's going to close in. Is it take 12 months to close a property when you, you know, get it under contract in March? I mean, the brokers didn't know. So we're, we're on the other side of that now, but lots of challenges just across the board. Um, but, you know, we wake up every day and we're thankful we don't own office buildings and we're not, you know, we don't own restaurants. We don't own certain retail. And there's just a lot of parts of real estate that are getting hit really hard right now. And we're just thankful to be in affordable housing. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Absolutely. And so one of the things you mentioned was the collections have been pretty great in the in the manufactured housing. What are some of the strategies that you guys have used to um, implement to make sure that the collections have been consistent and what kind of support was provided to like the tenants to help them along? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, um, so Ken McElroy is a close friend. He was one of the first guys I called him. Ken, I think over, uh, over 10,000 units and he sold some off a few years back and maybe at about 8,000 units. And so he was one of the first guys I called and said, well, what are you guys doing during this? And he said, well, we're kind of following the subprime process of what we went through then. And we stopped CapEx outside of health and safety. And we're really getting ahead of our move outs and calling all the residents and, hey, are you okay? Do you still have a job? Are you concerned? Are you okay to pay? Uh, they, I think they were waiving all of their application and late fees and things like that. So, you know, we did a lot of that stuff too. And it's just reaching out and, you know, if someone was maybe normally we wouldn't have set up a payment plan uh, with someone, but during this, we absolutely did if someone was going through hard times. So I think the best thing is just communication with the residents and um, someone all of a sudden isn't paying and they're not communicating and, 
and time goes by, well, you don't really have much of a choice um, when they stop communicating. But as long as people are communicating, you've got some, you know, you try to try to work everything out and, and give them some options. And the last thing you want to do is have a resident leave. But, you know, unfortunately, sometimes that that happens in our world. So what is your outlook now um, for the future after COVID-19? Like, what does that look like to you? Well, we're looking at deals again now. I mean, cap rates have really compressed in our space. Blackstone, which is a big company, had made a $550 million acquisition in 2020. So there's kind of the REITs and the hedge funds getting into this space, into the manufactured housing space. We started to see this years ago. Um, when we go to the these major conferences and and these guys started to show up and pretty big players and they may have been commercial or other you know apartment building guys or gals and, and whatever um, so I don't know what the future of the acquisition side is going to look like the next few years like Ken McElroy thinks there's going to be a crash this year with all of the inventory that's going back to the banks and three or four million single family mortgages that are 90 days delinquent or more that may cause a um, some sort of a correction in certain parts of real estate. I don't think that's really going to affect us because um, we're really so low on the economic ladder as far as who our residents are. But if everything continues where you know we're looking at all-time low interest rates, real estate's at an all-time high right now. It's been this way since the subprime crash, so we're, we're 12 years into this. So I don't know what acquisitions are going to look like, but at some point, things are just not going to pencil out anymore. And we either just sit on what we have and and continue to operate, own and operate that, or maybe we pivot to something else. Um, at some point, there will be a correction, and maybe that opens up some more opportunities for us. It's just hard to hard to say right now. But a lot of a lot of interesting things happening at once: economics and in the world of real estate. Absolutely. And so, um, one of the things also people invest in real estate. You know, they they're looking to. Um, take advantage of some of the tax strategies that are out there. Um, any of the tax strategies changing like going forward and then like, is it any different in the manufactured housing versus just like the regular housing and like multifamily space? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think, you know, obviously Trump is a real estate guy, so he has whatever agenda he has. Biden, I think, uh, had talked about discontinuing the 1031 where you could like, like kind exchange into another property and avoid capital gains. I don't know. It's really hard to say what's going to happen, but um, I think in general, I mean, in our in our world, we're similar to apartment buildings where we get great first year depreciation, and typically a lot of the cash flow coming off the equity investments, a lot of that's tax free through cost segregations and other other ways that we can um, we can do that. So hopefully, not too much gets impacted. You know, I think when you're looking at um, you know, as entrepreneurs, we're out creating jobs. We have a property management company and a construction company and the equity company. And you start kind of messing with people's uh, business models who are out there creating jobs. And I don't think that ends very well. So hopefully the government is smart and, you know, can see who's out there doing good things and creating net housing and creating jobs and things like that. So Andrew, what is your current focus right now? Like, are you guys just focusing primarily on the manufactured housing um, space? Yep, that's it. That's all we do. Uh, we own about 35 communities in 12 states now. We've built out a pretty big infrastructure and a vertically integrated company to operate these. So that's that's all we do. Um, my partner has a podcast called Investing for Freedom. I have a podcast called The Impatient Investor. And outside of that, and you know, some social media, we really are just we're owner operators, and that's the that's kind of our day to day focus on this one asset class. 
And so with the manufactured housing and investing in real estate, you know, have you guys been able to, you know, not get into that corporate world and doing your nine to five and everything like that? And then you're not trading your hours for dollars anymore. What does that kind of look like for you guys now um, as, you know, being part of real estate and investing in it? Yeah, I think anyone looking who's working in corporate America and they're looking to try to try to exit at some point and be a full-time investor or passive investor, whatever that looks like. It's it's just like anything else. It's creating a, a vision for, and it's creating a plan. I, I had about a five-year plan that I started in 2008. And I think I left the agency in 2013, something like that. Um, it wasn't easy, right? You're working a lot of hours in a busy corporate gig. It's very demanding. And then you're putting in almost another full-time job in, in acquisitions around that. But, you know, I think if that's your goal and that's your, what you should be doing as an entrepreneur or as a, as a real estate investor, then you somehow make it work. And, you know, the road is never easy, but you read a lot of books and listen to audiobooks and podcasts. And I mean, the amount of information out there and just think about the, the guests that you're having on and what they're sharing. I mean, there's so much free, amazing information out there. So it's just, you know, it's just turning off the TV um, maybe watching a little less TV and maybe reading a little bit more and things like that and just working on yourself and working on your plan. Absolutely. Great way to start, especially now we're in 2021, you know, like we can just start getting more educated and learning about all these new things and just preparing ourselves for what's to come. Yeah, absolutely. And so Andrew, what's, um, what is your guys's next focus for the upcoming year and the future? Not much has changed since the last quarter of 2020. We're just hoping, um, just personally, I hope the the vaccine gets out and we kind of resume some sort of whatever the new normal is. I have a lot of friends that are in entertainment and sports and concerts who have been just crippled for a, a year and an unbelievable amount of layoffs and furloughs and in that whole um, world. So I'm hoping that starts to get better and travel resumes and you know, what's going to be really sad through a lot of this is to see some of the, all the negative things that happen over the next year or two with, you know, 50, 60% of restaurants closing and certain industries that are just completely decimated. So um, I think it's been a hard, hard year for a lot of, a lot of people. And so I hope things start to get uh, better. And obviously you wake up and it's 2021 and it, you know, the world hasn't changed for the better, but hopefully we're on a good positive trajectory there. Yes. That's all we can hope for. <laughs> Yeah. And so Andrew, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? Um, you know, I think I got the, I mean, I got the bug back in probably 2007, 2008, and that journey went alongside personal development, which has been huge in all of this and, uh, getting around mentors and people that are, you know, doing exciting things that you're interested in doing. So, I mean, it's absolutely changed my life. Um, at the same time, it's a lot of hard work and that path is never easy. It's not one clear path. It's more, you know, it's hard and a lot of challenges and you probably end up working more for yourself than you do at, in corporate America at a gig, but, um, it's rewarding, you know, and you get to create jobs and we create safe, clean, affordable housing for people, which at the end of the day is a pretty great thing when you're going to bed at night. Absolutely. Especially when you have passion for it and you like what you're doing, it's not really work, right? <laughs> Right, right. Some days feels like work, though. <laughs> Some days. Um, so what is one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you did when you first started? 
I don't know if there's one specific thing, but you know, you just start doing deals and you learn a lot and you make a lot of mistakes and hopefully the mistakes that you make don't sink the ship and they're just good learning experiences. So I think mindset is everything. I think, um, I wish I had started on the personal development journey years before this years before I started into real estate. And so that would be the biggest thing is just, you know, if we've all got 24 hours in the day and a lot of, a lot of people like to make a lot of excuses about why they're not where, you know, why they're not happy where they are and, and things like that. And it's like, well, you could do a lot of things to change that. And so mindset, I think is, um, it's pretty huge and just kind of get on the personal development track and find a couple of great podcasts or go, even if you don't have very much money, go to the library and start reading books. And I mean, YouTube's pretty much free, so there's a lot to do, but personal development's been been a game changer for me in general. Yes, I would uh, echo that. You know, once you have your, you switch your mindset into thinking and believing in what you want and focusing on the goals and the outcomes that you want to achieve, you know, all you need to do is just set that plan in action and absorb all the knowledge you can, but then at the same time, take action. Absolutely. Yep, Absolutely. And so what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business? I think it's similar. I think it's it's personal development. I think it's relationships. Um, when I get around people who are really, really successful, whether they're you know a public figure or whether they're not, a lot of it's the same thing. They have really good habits. A lot of them uh, write down goals and do goal setting. And a lot are just in that personal development space. So they're always trying to be better. They're empathetic. They help other people, you know, generally pretty kind and caring people. So that's a lot of uh, who I try to spend time with. And I think um, a lot of the successful people that I met all, all have those similar qualities. And are there any tools or techniques that you could share that has improved the efficiency of your life or your business? I think a couple of things for me, um, definitely. I mean, I went from really never reading anything to 12 years ago, just devouring through books and, and podcasts and audiobooks and things like that. That's been huge. Meditation has been really great for me. Um, I can't think if there's other too, too much else other than just kind of that big bucket of personal development. I think that's been, that's been a, a game changer for me for sure. Awesome. Thank you. And so, Andrew, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where can they go? Yeah. So the best place, um, well, two places. One is the company website is fourpeakspartners.com. It's F-O-U-R peakspartners.com. And then the podcast is theimpatientinvestor.com. And that's probably the best best place to find us. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Really appreciate everything that you shared today. Yeah, thanks for doing what you're doing too. It's great and keep up the keep up the awesome work. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifacecapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.